Hi, I'm Ben Smith, the editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed, and this is Newsfeed, our podcast about the intersection of tech, media, and politics, which is where a lot of the action is these days. A lot of my guests have been media big shots of one sort or the other, but I'm joined this week by somebody coming from a somewhat different place. Stephen Miller is a person I met on Twitter, I guess about five years ago, when he called me a ridiculous hack. And since then, he's been criticizing me, BuzzFeed News, and, you know, tons of journalists for what he sees as a persistent left-wing bias and the, the way that it plays out in the media. I disagree with him on a lot of details and a lot of theory. Also, he's caught errors in, in very useful ways. But I think the thing that I find interesting about Stephen is that in a moment when there's an enormous amount of bullshit media criticism coming from the president of the United States and coming from a new class of trolls whose goal is really to promote themselves, to destroy media institutions if they can. Stephen is of an older school in a way, which is that he at least is trying in his way to to hold media accountable to what he sees as a kind of ideal. And he's also among the conservatives who really don't like Donald Trump. And between those two things, he occupies a kind of interesting and I think very kind of rich space on the Internet right now for people who don't have a really obvious intellectual home and are trying to wage a war on all fronts. And so um, we talked about his view of the media and, and, and of how this world of media criticism has changed and evolved. And by the way, we'll be taking a break after this episode. You can find past episodes and transcripts at buzzfeed.com slash newsfeedpodcast. You're part of among the first media critics on Twitter who was reading very closely on what like we of the we of the mainstream media, I guess, which sometimes a category BuzzFeed sometimes claims to be in. But the thing that struck me is like that that kind of media criticism is now the favorite sport of the president of the United States. And there's a huge number of people now attacking the media from, I guess, what you'd call the right, the kind of fake news crowd. But increasingly, some of them really aren't in good faith at all. Like the idea is really just to like troll you. And the goal is to destroy the idea of a free media and reporting. You're in the other category, which is like when you get things wrong, you tend to admit it. When you you focus on facts, there's a world of Pizzagate. You're not pushing Pizzagate. There's a world (laughs) of like bad faith trolling and the world of like good faith trolling. Do you consider yourself a troll? Is that a a bad Um, word? I, I think I think the problem is is where where trolling has become a lazy word for a lot of people in positions like yours or people at New York Times or Washington Post or CNN to just write off anybody who, you know, fires off a criticism toward them. When good trolling good trolling to me is actually just getting someone to admit they're wrong by using their own point of view. So, um, a, a good example about this was I, I love seeing stories about Planned Parenthood throwing million-dollar fundraisers and, you know, they, they're throwing these galas and stuff like that. And I love kind of just going, huh, Planned Parenthood can raise, fundraise money. Hmm, it's, it's nice that we're giving them, you know, they, they can make their own case for eliminate public funding. And then you'll get people kind of coming in and saying, you know, these galas and these these celebrity balls, well, this is they need to raise funds and they need and you kind of use this to make their own point. So you're using you're using their argument to make your own point. It's not so much just throwing criticism their way. So yeah, I think trolling is just it's become the lazy word for anybody who criticizes anyone else. The word used to be blogger. I remember when <laughs> right. I broke some news for Politico years ago and Rudy Giuliani dismissed it as having been broken by a blogger. Um, like in, you're 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 um, you're sitting here in our 
lovely little uh, podcast studio wearing a new fucking York t-shirt yeah. under a, I think it looks like a blue blazer, and having just gotten off the subway, and you look basically like your Twitter avatar, like, you know, kind of spiky hair. You, you, when I, the only time, other time we met was in a bar in Williamsburg where you live, which is not, I think, like the stereotype of conservatives in America. And, but I guess I just wonder, like, where, you know, where, where are you, what's your deal? Where do you, where did you grow up? Uh, I'm from Midwest originally. I'm from Denver. And I basically spent every day from the time I was 15 years old on trying to get out of it. I spent a little bit of time in Los Angeles doing film reject stuff, um, which, you know, I, I fell out of love with that real fast. And um, went back to Denver, got my degree in, I studied multimedia design. So it's anything from web design to graphic design to... And this is what you do for a living, right? Or did for a living before you became an right. establishment media yeah, figure. Yeah, I, st I still do some of it on the side, but no, no, none of you guys will ever find it, so... <laughs> I did a pretty good. Don't go issuing challenges I, I did, like uh, that to crazy people. I did a people. pretty good job covering my tracks. That's what um, that's what Gary Hart said. I spent about two years in Portland, um, which again, for a guy who's politically conservative, I've grown up in liberal social. Yeah, and tell circles. me, did, what did you have a political awakenings at some point? No. Were you radicalized on the internet? No, no, I've always been conservative. My my father basically drove Rush Limbaugh into my skull for about five or six, seven years. So I mean, he's just a guy we'd listen to. He'd turn it up in the car and, yeah, and um, it, some of that stuff kind of stuck. That sounds I, like I, was, right, yeah, it's um, child and child torture. But I've always kind of had problem with authority figures and I've never been really good at people just saying this is what you're supposed to do and this is what you're supposed to think. And I ran with crowds that basically all thought kind of the same way. Um, you know, I basically became really politically active, I would say, around the 2004 election with Kerry and Bush. And I've just, like I said, I've always kind of been a right-leaning guy. I'm still, I'm still an avid George W. Bush fan. And, um, you know, I would just kind of have all my friends pushing this campaign stuff and all this stuff. And then I was in Portland, Oregon when Obama won. And they're running out in the streets, banging pots and pans and singing Bob Dylan songs. And I was just kind of like, I was at a friend's house. And all I, all I remember saying to that was, gee, I, gosh, I hope he lives up to it. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> uh, it, does, it does make me think if you'd been in Colorado Springs, you would have wound up a left-winger. <laughs> Maybe, probably. Probably would have. And when did you discover Twitter? When did you get on the internet as, I, as politically? I had one Twitter account that I just used for kind of my friends and just to do cool design links from design blogs, which is kind of what I was involved with work. So I would just share kind of fun things like here's this and here's this. But even going back to MySpace, I was posting kind of political, you know, everybody who remembers MySpace, you, you could post your own separate blogs and your own box and everything like that. And uh, so I would be posting kind of political rantings there a little bit. But as far as Twitter, I would say it was roughly around Occupy Wall Street when I moved to New York, when the whole media was just on top of this Occupy thing. And they said, oh, this is beautiful. It's La Miz down in like, you know, Zuccotti Park right in the shadow of Wall Street. And, and, you know, and I lived right down there at the time. I just moved here and I walked down there and I took a look at it and it was not what anybody in media was saying it was. It looked like something out of Mad Max. I mean, it was just guys strung out all over the place. Yeah, you had a lot of like socialism, communism, stuff like that. Um, but, you know, there was also reports rampant sexual assault. There was guys just seriously just getting in cops' faces. Cop would just be standing on the thing and he just guy would just run up and scream at his face. So I kind of, that was it for me. That was kind of my breaking point. And that's kind of when I started a, a political Twitter, which was kind of anonymous. It was, you know, not my name or anything like that. Is this then, Red Steeze or this was The Wilderness? Um, I, another God, one. What was it named? Well, no, it was named something else. I don't even, it was like, God, I did like some really weird, distressed, punky, elephant logo too for, for GOP, but I was just kind of one unhappy with 
state of conservative media and Twitter's the only place where people like me, where I, I didn't come from journalism school, I don't go from Ivy League straight to the Washington Post. So it's a place where people like me can voice our opinions. And if you're good at it, people I think eventually catch on. And, you know, I basically said, well, if I get 5,000 followers, I'll start a blog. If I get 10,000, I'll do this. And that's kind of what happened. So yeah, here Twitter, I am. Yeah, Twitter, I mean, one of the, it's, it's small d democratic, right? I mean, you can, you can fight your, you can Anybody, fight your way into the conversation. Right. Yeah. Right. You still have to have a good sense and know what you're kind of talking about. It's not, it's, if you're just throwing a bomb and you're just, you know, using it to vent, well, yeah, you can use it that way. I never understand these deep conversations about harassment and trolling on Twitter and all these things that we have to get this stuff under control. Twitter to me is whatever you want it to be. If you want drama on your timeline, you're going to get drama on your timeline, but you can easily shut drama off of your timeline. It can be anything you want. You can reveal anything you want about yourself. You can put your kids up there or not. I'm pretty guarded about my personal life. There's people say this, you know, I accidentally, one time I snapped like a photo off my phone of my bedroom of my cat sitting on the thing and I accidentally, and it, uploaded to Twitter. I had no idea it was up there. And people laughed and said, oh, no, don't take that down. It's like seeing a unicorn. So people, you're as open as you wish to be on Twitter, but it's anything you want it to be. You can control almost 100% of that environment that you exist. If someone's screaming at you, block them out, mute them, block them. Obviously, there's going to be cases where people are going to use this in senses of, of cyber stalkings and things like that. But for the most part, when you hear about harassment and bullying, I just don't buy it. It's Twitter's whatever you want to use it for. I mean, you and I actually have been very careful about what you reveal about your, your who you are, like on Twitter, off Twitter, your family, your personal life. Right. Lots of people don't have that luxury. Lots of people, all of that is Googleable, easily, easily found. You know, and obviously, like, you and I probably get fewer rape threats than, like, some of our female colleagues on both You'd sides. You'd be surprised. On, on both sides of the aisle. And maybe you and I have, like, thicker skin than most people about vitriolic personal attacks and people on the internet wishing you death. Like, I certainly have a thick skin about that. I don't get that um, many death threats, though. Oh, well, congratulations. I'm really disappointed, though. But that's the thing. Like, yeah, but, I hear people but, talking but I about guess, death but, threats. But, do you, but I also think, like, you're saying, like, there's a kind of, like glibness to saying like come on deal with the death threats like i can deal with them i mean isn't that kind of a lot to ask of a no, regular person no it's not they they can shut they can if someone says I, I hope you die you dumb bitch you can block that and go about your day there is this kind of the, you can also the, block that and be really freaked out by it right you like are you are you wrong to be freaked out by that is twitter re required i'm not going to say somebody's wrong but twitter is required to host that content it is important that twitter hosts that content promote it circulate it like it's, no, it's their no, obligation no i'm not i'm not a twitter free speech i'm not one of these guys who thinks twitter is a, is a right like you're seeing these articles about people who donald trump blocks on twitter and now they're suing these people are ridiculous you know like i said twitter can be whatever you want it for but they can also do whatever they want. That's because when you sign up for it, you're abiding by their rules. So yeah, if somebody commits a death threat, you should be able to report that and that should be dealt with. But I'm talking about, you're kind of talking about this thing about that could freak you out and stuff like that. So yeah, I, I fully believe it shouldn't freak you out. I just I just don't think that you're you're on the internet. And I had a friend describe who was not political and he jumped on Twitter for about three or four months to kind of promote some of his own music and then he's gone. He was basically like, no, this is like a political mosh pit. I can't do this. <laughs> right. And that's how I and that's kind of how I look at it. But no, I, I think you 
I mean, you might be right about that where you can you can take something like that and just brush it off and I can take something like that and brush it off. I'm not going to tell somebody else how to feel. I'm telling you from my perspective, it's it's pretty easy to just get, right. and I think it's I've pretty always, easy to go about your day. And I think I've always enjoyed being called a ridiculous hack by you because that's like that's yeah. within the spectrum of how people – You have gotten better. As, as a reporter on the internet, like that's sort of how you have I've lived since 2004. It used to be comment sections. Before at one point, Media Matters was sending around reporters per email addresses and I got like 1,500 emails one day from them. That was actually of all the annoying things. That one is harder to block because it's um, – <laughs> You're part of a kind of intellectual world that I think is one of the most interesting places on the internet now, which is conservatives who are not fans of Donald Trump, not beyond not fans, conservatives who hate Donald Trump. And it seems like it means that you have nothing to lose in a certain way. Like it feels liberating. It, like I feel like you're, you're better at <laughs> Only this Only the now. country. Like <laughs> just the country. You know. But back in the day when you were defending Mitt Romney, I don't know, there's a kind of handcuffs that come with partisanship. Do you feel liberated? By the um, fact that you've got no, you know, no, I, nobody I to mean, champion? I, no, I, I kind of, I, you know, like I just kind of snarked about, you know, well, all we have to lose is the country. I think that that's how a lot of us look at it. I think that that was also part of the problem with Trump is even upon his election, he may be successful short term and Trumpism might be successful short term. He's going to give people what, what they want. But inevitably, he's probably going to end up destroying the right. He's going to end up destroying conservatism. And there's a lot of people who like to associate Trump with conservatives. And he simply has never even claimed that he's a conservative, I don't believe. He tries to kind of wedge himself into there, but that's just what he does. So whenever people either in media or some say, you know, conservatives are allowing this. No, I mean, conservatives were the only people who tried to stop this, like really genuinely tried to stop all of this while CNN and MSNBC and the whole media was just loving him beating up on all the golden boys. They loved that Trump was just going after Cruz and Paul and Rubio and all these guys that I, I think, think they left. Lo- I think they loved the ratings. Um, well, of course they did. But they, you know, they loved the show. And then, of course, you you know, you have Trump on Saturday Night Live and you have all of this stuff. So it was great when he was doing it to the right. It was great when, you know, Trump is going after the people that generally the, you know, mainstream media who also finds, you know, well, we don't really like these guys. And all of a sudden conservatives for six, seven months, you know, we're the ones seeing this happen. He steamrolls us, which we kind of just had to accept. And it's like, okay, well, that's over with. Then he, of course, steamrolls Hillary. And now he's, of course, trying to steamroll media. So when you, is, is it kind of liberating? I mean, no, because we care very deeply about what the long-term health of where this is going to lead, not just the party and not just our ideology, but also what it's going to do to the country. So, you know, I wonder, I, I, this is actually a question that we were tweeting about the my interview with Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, who told me he thinks, you know, the corporate media ought to be replaced by kind of, kind of people's media. That, yeah, he wants he wants just about everything publicly funded. Um, the, uh, but kind of, you know, he's been critic- incredibly critical of, and bitterly critical of the New York media that he deals with. And I said to him, and I, these are criticisms I understand at another moment. Maybe it's like a, these are reasonable arguments to have. Doesn't this just make you as fundamentally an attack dog for the White House? If, I mean, you're, aren't you basically kind of a soldier in Donald Trump's army if what you are doing all day is, is attacking and chipping away at the at media institutions? I think there's, there's a big misunderstanding with um, I think people in your industry and people again with bigger outlets as well as you know we are you know again unwilling sold every time we're attacking a media we're, we're kind of doing Trump's work for him while he sits back and kind of does the Mr. Burns you know excellent but here's what I'll tell you is 
our media right now is really the only thing that can hold him accountable. Conservatives can't hold him accountable anymore. The Republicans aren't going to hold him accountable anymore. And that requires a good media. And right now, 98% of our media is bad. So a good media has to hold him accountable on serious issues, not things like his ice cream scoops, not things like a video breakdown of every second that he shook Emmanuel Macron's hand for 25 seconds. You know, these are things that make it obnoxious and these are things that empower him. And so where I come from is when I'm, you know, lobbing bombs at, at you guys, I'm coming from a spot of like you guys need to be better because you're the only ones that can hold him accountable now. This isn't about so much bias and it's about the need to drive content and the need to drive, like you said, ratings overwhelms anything else that we've been hearing about this new golden age of journalism. It's just, it's not that. So I'm kind of coming from the part of some tough love of saying, you know what, you guys, you're screwing this up. Like what you're doing is not going to hold him accountable and it's probably going to end up leading to more of him. Does that make sense? That... No, I think I mean that's actually kind of partly why I thought I kind of wanted to talk to you because I think that right now it's it's so noisy out there. There's a lot of people in my profession who perhaps spend less time on Twitter than I do. It's like very hard to distinguish between you and someone like Mike Cernovich, who you know, like Charlie Warsaw had a great piece about kind of these cable, these broadcast news interviews with someone like that who really isn't interested in he's not trying to make the media better he's trying to destroy it right and, it, and it's and there's well, no but there's... the media is never going to be destroyed these these guys have this myth in their hand that they're going to be able to take down cnn and they're going to be able to take down right but there's BuzzFeed not there's and... not a good faith critique of our ignoring pizzagate to be had like right like right. that's not a good faith argument but, that's on, a... but on the other hand and, and i read charlie's stuff i think he's probably your best reporter right now but nobody does more to elevate these guys like Cernovich or on the alt-right than our media. So, I mean when CBS gives him a primetime slot and they do it for a reason. They do this to, to hold somebody like him up and say this is what the right is now. These are – you know, this is this is who the right has become. They're overwhelmed with I think, Trumpism. I think you overthink the amount of theory that goes well, into this Maybe. Stuff. But uh, you know, this, that's kind of how I look at it. So we're going to give Cernovich – we're going to give these guys effect. so much attention that this – see, this is what conservatives are right, just like it, they did with it, Trump. It sort of squeezes out the more responsible right, the real right in a way. Like, because I think that, you know, you have folks who really don't believe in anything and are looking to destroy us. I mean, I think there's, Trump is essentially represents this and that it's very hard to engage in good faith. Donald Trump, you're not, you, the media is not having a good faith argument with him. His criticisms are not, he's not listening to the response to his criticism and modulating his tone. Well, but neither are they. <laughs> we saw this with Cuomo's interview with Conway, this 35 minute just, nuh-uh, you are, nuh-uh, you are fest. There was nothing involved in that that benefits anybody. I mean, there's not one side making their argument and another side making their argument or challenging. It just becomes this constant slap fight. And that's where I think people tune out and they just say, well, we've had enough of this. Right. Which is, is that, that's, I assume, why you, you, you sort of adopt such a kind of like calm and soothing tone in your own, in your own uh, rhetoric on Twitter? <laughs> um. Again, because I think my colleagues who block you or who aren't a fan of yours, it's not. I think it's mostly because they feel like you're hyper aggressive, and that there's like kind of a hyper aggressive voice on Twitter well, that makes it hard well, to a, engage the I'm, criticism. Well, I'm a blunt instrument, and I and I do believe, you know, like we said, Twitter can be, uh, like I said, Twitter can be whatever you want it to be. I believe it to be a sort of a weapon. Again, where someone like me, and I don't mean that in the sense of like I don't want to be someone who like tries to dogpile somebody with 200 followers. Um, 
I kind of don't ever really believe in punching down on social media. That's just not what I do, you know, unless someone makes a really, really fun comment or they make one so easy that I just can't pass it up. But I do consider it to be a kind of weapon that I can use, especially someone like I said who just was a guy who kind of stumbled into this whole thing. And for some reason, I, I, ungodly reason, I have no idea why you, you amass a little bit of a following and then it kind of gains and it kind of gains. Do you feel like you have to constantly modulate what is punching down as your own voice gets bigger? Like I've certainly found that, right? Like for me to like pick a fight with a junior reporter somewhere now is like really obnoxious where like years ago that was like, you know, I was a junior reporter somewhere yeah. picking fights with other no, people. I, I mean, mean, you sort of are the media now, right? You a little bit. Well, Fox, yeah. I'm, you... Yeah. I mean, I'm doing well, I'm contributing Game of Thrones to Fox. So it's, let's not get too, I'm not like, you know, fluffing Hannity here under the desk. So, and we just talked about this on my podcast where we, you know, where um, I got a little bit of shit for selling out. What's which, your podcast called? It's the Conservatarians with John Gabriel at Ricochet. So, which we kind of try to keep a humorous and, and this is kind of where I come from to write is I try to keep things at least funny in, in any sense, even if it's hyper aggressive, I want there to be some brand of humor in there because I think that that's where, and this is where your industry doesn't understand the guys on the alt-right and the guys who post memes and stuff like that is they just, if they can be funnier than you to a lot of people, you're going to lose that argument. So as far as like modulating, yeah, I mean a little bit, but a guy like me with just a blue check mark and, you know, it's a, I think I have like 90,000 followers, but in all honesty with Twitter engagement, it's probably 20,000, you know, and then even more people that engage with me is probably 25. So I do believe in using it a little bit responsibly. I'm not there to, you know, go and try and sickly own and destroy Sharon in the photo with her two dogs with an American flag who's typing in all caps at me, MAGA train, baby, MAGA, and, and yep. just going crazy. That's not what I'm there to use it for. Even if I have veterans who jump on me, and you, there's a lot of veterans that use Twitter. This is one thing that I found really interesting. Even if they disagree with me or they just, you know, they they throw the worst insult at me. If I, I generally go and look at a bio and if it says veteran, just leave it alone. I'm like... <laughs> Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. When I disagree most with you, it's when you kind of like impute motives or, or like make guesses about how things are working internally right. here or somewhere else. When I'm like, no, sometimes we screw up. Sometimes like you're you sort of take a political lens to something that isn't being thought about politically. Do you feel like you've learned or changed your view on how these institutions work over four or five years of really like engaging us pretty frontally and no. fighting with people? <laughs> no. I think I think for the most part, you, you guys are pretty much everything that I, I still think. And when I say you guys, I mean media large. And generally when I mean media large, I mean obviously the networks. I mean Wash Post, obviously Wash Post, New York Times, uh, New York Daily News, even, you know, some of the right-leaning stuff. Who do you um, think is good? What do you, what are you, what are you, what do you like? Um, like what in like media or both sides? What, what, like who the, do I read? Yeah, I think yeah. Like what do you? Who do you? What in the MSM? I guess which is we we're still sort of a useful uh, term. I mean, like who's doing it well? The, the, nobody. <laughs> it's just nobody. Um, here's but here's what I'll say. I read a lot more left leaning stuff than I do right leaning. Like I I haven't I haven't gone to the Drudge Report in years. I mean, literally, I mean, I don't, I don't go to that website. You're missing I went, out. I know, right? Yeah. Play the, which one is the Alex Jones link? You know, if you just go up and down, I think like I went to it when he linked to a couple of things and I go and I look like that. But as far as I read a lot more, I mean, is for, for the punching back that they are, I read Vox every day. 
I do read you guys occasionally. I do read the New Republic a lot. I do read the New York Times. I do read the Washington Post. I read a lot of this media more than I would say I read National Review or if, um, I even read Fox News or I Red State, you know, the or the Federalist. These bright blogs that are out there. Um, I like to know what the other side is thinking, and more importantly, I like to know what they're arguing. Um, but most of what we're doing is reporting. I mean, I think that's like a big part of the imbalance. Like there aren't really meaningful conservative reporting institutions at the moment. I know there are sort of attempts to build them. But like I think like 95% of what I think about of what Dean Bacay thinks about, this is I think less true obviously of like a Vox, of political, more sort of politicized places, but is like, are we sure those girls said that those things to R. Kelly? You know, like is right. like reporting on stories. And not that we don't have blind spots and not that we certainly don't like culturally come from a certain place here. Do you, do you think your, your blind spot is, do you think that you come from a standpoint that's either inherently from the left or progressive? And I think you can say progressive without meaning I'm talking about Nancy Pelosi. I'm I think talking our about... blind spots tend to be kind of like cultural and generational. Like like my newsroom is full of people under 40 who mostly live in New York and wanted to be journalists, which is actually probably depending no matter where they're from. Right. Some, of them, some of them come from the right. Some of them worked in conservative media, including myself and our political editor. But I think like our blind spots tend to be like most of all generational, honestly. So you, so you just think like but, uh, but just I, based on the fact that you're hiring these younger people and younger people generally come are now coming from and even more just the kind of people who, are, who you know mostly came out of most I mean less than not all but most of them college graduates right not a certainly not a requirement to be in this business right but um like I, there's like a obvious kind of demographic skew there's like all sorts of cool kid inside Twitter blind spots that you have as well as I do probably about how we see the world. Some of that overlaps with ideology. Some of it maybe overlaps like more like kind of, I guess the word neoliberalism is back in, uh, right. is um, back in vogue. Here's a good example. And I wrote about this when uh, there was the case of Yasmin Saweed, who was the um, woman in New York City who claimed she, she went and told cops that she had her, she had her heat hijab ripped yes, off. This is, a, this is actually a really good example. And, I'm glad we're talking. Um, I was going to bring this one up too because right. I think it's good for us to talk about this And one. your original headline was drunk men yelling Donald Trump attempt to remove women's hijab on New York subway. The headline should have said, as the story said, right. she claims. Exactly. And actually, after I think after you pointed it out, we changed it. because You that changed was... it to, here's what you changed it to. Yeah. Woman arrested for allegedly making up story of New York subway well, attack. The, the story did change. But here's the thing. like When somebody makes a police report, that's an allegation. But it is something, if you pick up any new, the Washington Times today, you will see the word alleged a number of times in that newspaper. It's a convention of journalism, maybe wrong, but that when, when somebody has made, has filed charges of some kind of crime being committed, you report it. And you do say allegedly, right? And I think our initial headline obviously should have had that. And then right. appropriately, when it turned out to be that she'd made it up, we went with that. But I feel like to me, what you were implying was the media is sort of conspiring to create an impression that like there's this anti-Muslim wave in America which doesn't exist. To me, there's lots of other evidence that it does exist. Of course, that's why we're more, that's why the media is sensitive to that kind of incidents. You right. said a guy running for president just like attacking Muslims wholesale. Right. That seems reasonable. Uh, but also, obviously, like I, I wrote about the woman who said that an Obama supporter had carved a, what did, he, what did she supposedly carve? A she, bee? Well, she carved in her a bee face. into her cheek. She carved it into her. It, but like, it's a huge challenge for journalists that people lie to them and make things up and lie to right. the cops. I mean, but, skepti but that's a skepticism sort of... to me should override 
anything that Donald Trump is saying about Muslim bans and there's this wave of crime throughout. I mean, skepticism is to me is, is the absolute most necessary thing to me, at least from what I see in journalism today. And there's not right. a lot of it. It's and everybody's somebody... kind of rushing to prove their confirmation bias. Like, ooh, this woman had her hijab ripped off. So we got to go and report that as opposed to going, okay, let's wait and see how this goes. There was one instance in Oregon as well, which the, like people just dropped. It was really this, this guy who claims somebody broke into his house and spray painted and wrecked his house and they, they put a cross and bullets all on the table and stuff like that. Yep. And this one wasn't really picked up by national media because I think they looked at this and went, something doesn't smell right here. This doesn't pass the smell test. Like the words were misspelled on is like, you know, get out of America or something. But then there was no follow-up to this at all and it was kind of like – and then he ended up on a GoFundMe where it was supposed to go to repairing his house and then he actually puts on his GoFundMe, oh, by the way – um, I have a friend who's going to do all of this, so I'm just going to keep the money. Right, and right. That, that then, like the t- reality that there are liars and disturbed people who make up crimes, and that right. they often latch on to a sort of plausible narrative. And sometimes those crimes, like those fake crimes, are sort of have a like too good to check quality. I mean, the woman who carved B and O into her face. Actually, I remember. Are you, are you doing whataboutism right now? I, I remember. I remember. You're doing whataboutism. I remember Michelle Malkin actually, of all people, immediately said, "Ah, this this is like too much. What I want to believe right. to be true for it to be true." I think like that's an important reflex to have. But I think that, I mean, I guess what we have tried to do, and it's so hard with this stuff, is to report the hell out of and document. You know, is there an uptick in bullying in schools? Like we, you know track down dozens and dozens of incidents and parents and teachers saying like, yes, and here's what actually happened in great detail. I mean, I'm not sure there's a real substitute for just trying to report these things out. And then when you're wrong, and I, to me, this is actually what one of the things that distinguishes the legit kind of what I see as the legitimate media from the really kind of new, totally bad faith media is that you totally, when is that when the story, when you either you've made an error or you've been lied to and the police have been lied to, as in that case, you like very aggressively and thoroughly rewrite the story to say the opposite of what it said, as opposed to trying to argue your way into some position of consistency. Right. And I actually think one of the things that I see in you is that you're, is that you're very attuned to hypocrisy and to like people being inconsistent. And I think for reporters, you shouldn't be invested in your previous theory, your previous story being true. You should be invested in like getting the thing you're writing about right. And if that contradicts something you wrote before, better to kind of have the contradiction than to sort of feel some investment in in not correcting. Like oh, that's always the sort of when people are like micro arguing about corrections, that's always the thing that right. red flag for me. Um, yeah, I don't, th- I mean, those are things, I mean, my problem is- But you're not is... going to find somebody who hasn't at some point been lied to and, you know. No, but again, that this this comes from a place of, are you eager to believe this person? Because like you said, they, they're giving you something that, proves your narrative and I think that narrative journalism is a big problem. I mean it's a human – it's like a – Right. I mean it's the, a – I agree. The, the thing about narrative journalism to me is – and this is mainly where I come down hard on BuzzFeed is if anybody who kind of notices me on Twitter, I don't go after Media Matters. I don't go after Think Progress. I don't go after Mother Jones. I don't go after Salon. I don't even read Salon. Um, I don't. I, I don't believe you don't go after Salon, man. No. You got to hold those the guys. The hate, ac- the hate clicks. You got to, you got to hold those guys accountable. Salon gets more traffic from people on the right than I think that that's their that's their industry. Is hey, let's just go piss off some conservatives and we're just going to get our ad money there. Oh, that's unfair. Um, but 
I don't pick on these people. I don't go after ideological differences on Twitter. What I want and what I look at is when I see outlets who say, well, no, we're, we're just, we're down the middle and we're doing these things and we're hip like this is all, all I care about is what somebody admits what they are. And BuzzFeed's kind of this thing to me where you have this progressive ideological bent to you and you are very, very, very skilled at kind of hiding that behind the rest of the brand and the content, which in all honesty, you kind of inherited when you came into BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed was, I mean, I remember yeah, was, clicking on this site 10, America's, 15 years ago and it was just like- It was the world's the, leading the lowest, web culture and cat The site. lowest common denominator for the web. It's like, um, it was just- it <laughs> How was, often it was, were you clicking on it again? <laughs> oh, well, no, no, no. I'm talking, well, yeah, I mean, when, no, I mean, when we're I still, in, And we're still, we still do tons um, of kind of web culture and- you Right. Know. I mean, you guys aren't- But that's but a you, culture- you guys aren't like what I said about like Mother Jones and stuff. Like Mother Jones isn't presenting their their arguments about you know the problems of why the Republicans are going to kill everyone with their health care bill. And oh by the way, here's a video of a cat eating a watermelon kind of thing. And so always my thing. And if you've noticed, I haven't been I haven't been very tough on you guys lately, mainly because I think you guys have admitted what you are. I think you guys are leaning into your you know your, your progressive bent a little bit. Now that doesn't mean that what you do isn't uh. credible. So it doesn't mean like some of the yeah, journalism see, you're doing because I think there is credible journalism on the left. It's just again, yes, yeah, it's interesting because I see it in, in, in almost in the opposite way, which is that like you certainly like we come from a place which is actually the the, the watermelon. I don't think cat. It's hard to picture a cat eating watermelon, but but I get the idea. But we but really what that is is a culture. Like that's like the web culture of our of your and my two thousands or nineties youth, right? Like that's more a culture than it is a certainly an ideology. But any culture comes with its, you know, the, the called the Upper West Side culture the New York Times comes out of comes with its set of, you know, beliefs and some of them totally uncontroversial, right? Like I think, you know, it's hard, I, there's probably not a news outlet in America that says, well, like on the, on the question of racial segregation, there are two sides, right? Like there's a lot of this stuff is banal. The, the assumptions that you right. make in the in like the culture well, that we that come was, out and of that was kind of your famous ethics thing where you said on certain it, issues there aren't two in sides. the culture in in the culture that we are part of and come out of the question of whether gay people are equal to straight people or whether being gay is like a psychological disease like that's not an open question I don't want to pretend that we're, that we treat it as one but the question of how like whether a florist should be required to provide services like the, that legal or constitutional question that's something we you know we're going to cover in a straightforward way and don't have a sort of have some kind of fixed perspective on but I guess what we but I, but I actually think like from my perspective and I guess this is what sometimes I found frustrating is there's and this used to be I used to get this when I was a Politico we got this from the left all the time which is all we're asking is that you admit your that what you real what you're fundamentally about is pushing an ideology, and everything else you do is in the service of that. And like, if you've come up as I have as a reporter, like I covered City Hall for years, no, like what we're fundamentally about is trying to get good stories and print stories somebody didn't want printed. In the course of that, obviously, we come out of a place, and often we put a lot of internal energy into making checking our checking our instincts and sometimes failing at that. I think that like people who are interested in motivated by ideology project that on an industry that like surely has its blind spots and is swimming in the same ideological waters as everybody else. But it's not – it's just not what we spend our time thinking about. No, and I, I don't think you guys – I think that's kind of right. like this – No, and I and I don't – I'm not one of those guys who thinks you guys go into a boardroom and go, OK, well, how can we make – you know, The star chamber. Right. But I mean there was – there's one major instance of this and this was to me kind of one of these – 
seminal moments um, in media, which was the, the all-famous Barack Obama selfie stick video um, that you guys did. I mean, there's so much working in that if video. I could get Donald than... Trump to goof around with a selfie stick, I would. I had We had Ted Cruz in here That's doing... That's the problem. Uh, we, you shouldn't. You we, shouldn't do that We had that Ted things. Cruz in doing... Um, I think he did a Simpsons impression for right. us. Right. It wasn't that it was the selfie stick. I mean, you're gonna you're gonna get the scolds who are always gonna say, you know, there's more important things happening. That, you, you know, that was the day this. Barack Obama became president, right? And um, but my problem on this, and not not in my problem, but what I said is kind of where yeah. I kind of went. Well, they you kind of is this video was done to promote Obamacare. Like this wasn't just a Obama dancing around, you know, being goofy with sunglasses and the selfie stick. This was Buzzfeed actively participation in pushing the president of the United States healthcare law, which was to try and get people enrolled into, and in return for that, what it looked like in return for that, he gave you guys an interview. And so you're basically trading access to go out and push Obama's law. Now, to me, that looks like, well, you would, there's several reasons why you would agree to that. One, because Obama's cool. Okay. He's everywhere in culture. He's there. He's on award shows. He's on ESPN. He's hanging out with celebrities. And so Obama's kind of this cultural cool guy more than he is a politician and a president. But even more so, you're helping him push this agenda basically forward. And so I look at things like that and I say, to me, that's the problem. The problem isn't the selfie stick. The problem isn't the video. The problem is, is you have news organizations actively stepping in to push their agenda. I think anytime you get access to a public figure, that public figure is going to use it to push their agenda. But like it's can, almost. But it's you almost, could say, you know, I don't know. Like how when this I talked to Bill, look. when I interviewed Bill De Blasio, he was pushing his public. I mean, there's just no circumstance in which a public right. figure goes on Saturday, and it goes on any forum where they're not. And and that and I think like that exchange, like I've, I'm basically am a believer in that line that access is a curse, and like that exchange, I kind of like that exchange of access for the person's use of your megaphone should right. make everybody nervous. But it's a part of the balance of like that kind of journalism. I mean, right. But I, you know, it's, it is interesting. I mean, I think like you also, the sort of critique of like blending entertainment and news is something we've thought about a lot. And, and we have more, much more separate entertainment and news divisions than we did, than we did at that time. Right. But I, but I guess I also felt there was sort of absolute value to getting Obama to participate in the thanks Obama Reddit meme. So, you know, it's a, <laughs> It's like a you bet no you balance your. Uh, so yeah, I mean that. So that's yeah. But no I value mean, they right. shut down the whole subreddit. Those are the things that I look at is when when you when you talk about hypocrisy and then you talk about well no we're just we're kind of looking for good stories. Um, things where that are glaring to me and were kind of things that stick out to people on the right who look at this stuff. A good example is, is and and I'm by no means like a hard pro life guy. This is not my this is not my issue. But you know you You're have not. that's interesting to me because you no. tweet a lot about it. Here's how I look at this. You it, feel like there's like the there's an unfairness to that point of view in a way. Oh, of course there is, yeah. and it's not even unfairness. It's institutionalized, and it's you, you, there's all this umbrella under, you know, pushed under women's rights and things like that. But I think what became really evident is when David DeLine went undercover at you know these clinics, and then it became automatically written off as okay, well these are edited, these are you know these are illegal, and these are things like this. And Mother Jones wins awards for doing this very same thing when they go undercover at animal plants, basically. And so the, the the problem where I look at this and I go, okay, if and people who remember when these videos broke, Planned Parenthood was spinning. Their head was just going, you know, Cecil Richards was apologized. She looked deer in headlights. SKDK Knickerbocker gets involved, which is I'm sure anyone in your audience knows who they are. It's basically the biggest Democrat PR firm. And I admire these guys. It's funny. I think we did a story basically saying this, right, that prosecuting people for obtaining – undercover recordings that 
probably do violate right. California's one-party consent, whatever, whatever. You know, that said, reporters often rely on sources who record things and give them those documents that maybe like putting aside the law, which we all respect briefly, like reporters' sympathies instinctively ought to be with people who are making undercover recordings and publicizing right. them. And, and I mean, I think that's the, the kind of, but the thing where I look at this and I go, okay, so, and I see kind of how the sausage gets made is, and, and you know, nothing on like a reporter like Kate Nassara, but she came straight from BuzzFeed to SKDK back to BuzzFeed. Reporter of mine who made a brief I career I know, choice. That I know. Was a, did not work on this stuff. And, but even more so to the point, your BuzzFeed's health reporter accepted awards from Planned Parenthood at one of their galas, somebody which is fundraising. Not in our news division, and we would not have if it was in our news division. But, I, right. but I'm not. But you so can find the, these but things. I'm, but I'm showing you, and for your audience, how somebody like me looks at these things no, through a lens and goes, "Huh, and this can, is interesting." And, can, and I feel like somebody like you can easily like put dots together like that, and not sort of look into a newsroom and see like, "Oh, actually, like." Perhaps some of the people you mentioned are like having like very intense conversations about how can we make sure that we are accurate in the way we cover those stories, you know, and like, and I do think there's a glibness sometimes to the, when you come with the expectation that those dots are going to form a picture, you can find it. I mean, I think something you said earlier was kind of interesting that like the media doesn't, doesn't, um, you know, point to these Planned Parenthood fundraisers and say, why do they really need public funding? I mean, that's certainly true, though, of Sloan Kettering. They have the Cancer Center in New York has galas with celebrities that raise lots of money. So, right. I mean, it's not in any way unusual. I mean, obviously, Planned Parenthood and their celebrity is, is on extreme edge of it. But there aren't there aren't major institutions in the country in healthcare that don't try to have star-studded galas are you doing full of, full of assholes. You're and, doing whataboutism again. <laughs> whataboutism. <laughs> this is now the, conver- the way to end term. the conversation it's on my, Twitter. It's my new favorite we are term. All, we're all, we're all we're living all, in we're, 1970s, we're all doing the 1970s Soviet Union now. Yeah. Um, I think that folks like you, there's this strange moment, and probably I've, like, I've hired a lot of people who come sort of from where you do, that where you're like, wait, I'm a journalist. I'm, I'm part of the problem. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel that? I mean, does that? Um, do you have trolls? You know, oh, of course. getting out of saying like that. You know, sort of doing to you. You are the media. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's funny. I that's I always tell people when they uh, when they insult me. I'm just just don't call me a journalist. It's like the lowest form of insult you can actually do for me. So, um, yeah. And that's but that's going to happen anyway. So I mean, that's it's again like I said, the charge of you know now as I'm contributing to Fox, doing some culture media stuff for Fox, people, you know, you're, you're a media critic. How are you How are you in the media and stuff like that? Do you, does, it, does it make it hard for you to criticize Fox? No. <laughs> I think people you pretty much know. You're concerned you're going to lose your Game of Thrones column? Yeah, right. Well, I'm going to lose it in five weeks anyway because it's a six-week season. So, But basically, this thing about being in the media, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the thing is, is that people are pretty familiar with my Twitter feed and they're pretty familiar with the kind of tweets that I put out there. So if you want me to then come write for you and then tell me you need to moderate your Twitter feed, then obviously you're not wanting me to write for you for the right reasons. So I've been I've been really fortunate with that. Even at National Review. You gotta say you gotta stay true to your Twitter feed. I got I got the word I got the words poop swastika on the front page of National Review online. Well, so well, that was that was the watermark. Um, congratulations. I do think it's an interesting thing for writers who've come up on, on Twitter and social media that like you have a sort of obligation to your voice there and your following there that you can't then betray when you get a job. Right. And it can actually be like a challenge for people, I think, right. in some and, ways. But I mean, that's also been one of the easiest things for me. I, have not, I haven't had to ever worry about a nine to five. People right. do. 
And I completely understand that. And this comes down to, again, this fun new discussion we're having about internet anonymity with content and GIFs and memes and things like that is I've had that luxury to be able to kind of say not only what I've wanted to say, but also when people who I think are in these, you know, jobs where they can't be, you know, like they they might read Twitter is what you call it, the heartbeat of news, um, which I agree with. Um, So I can also kind of be that conduit for them. You can be the... uh... I'm not. I'm not pretending to be a shepherd here. I've, right. I I, reg- I yeah, routinely yeah. tell people I'm going to let them down eventually. You're not anonymous, but you have a very sort of like clear and simple public identity that allows you to sort of right. that, that doesn't get oh, in the yeah, way of your, of your. Yeah, that's yeah. I'm yeah. I'm there. For, I'm there for a purpose. And you can always and... be confused with the the other Stephen Miller. Does that <laughs> so happen a lot? Fun. Not anymore. Since Elena Plot wrote a piece about it, and I and I contemplated even letting her do it. She's like, everyone's mistaking this anti-Trump guy for Trump's. You know, whatever. Have you ever talked to Stephen Miller about it? No, I know nothing about the guy. We're so pleased that White House advisor Stephen Miller was able to join us for this conversation about immigration policy. But yeah, so we will um, probably like edit this as misleadingly as possible. I'm sure. And put it on the web. Thanks for subjecting yourself to this. Appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Newsfeed was produced by Eleanor Kagan, Meg Kramer, Daryl Levy, and Alex Laughlin. And we'll be taking a break after this episode. You can find past episodes and transcripts at buzzfeed.com slash newsfeedpodcast.